when Xbox and so on came along, that was using the same DirectX technology, right? Yeah, it's the Direct Xbox. So DirectX, you can think of it as its own operating system. And today, all of Windows is built on top of DirectX. So all of the Windows architecture, graphics, everything sits on top of what used to be the DirectX layer because it was faster and leaner and better driver architecture. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Guerrilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Hi folks, greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. This is the show where we explore the latest trends and innovations in the tech world with a decidedly New Zealand slant. I'm your host, Paul Spain. And on this episode, which is a long one, it is well worth sticking with because the conversation features some fascinating insights that you probably can't get anywhere else. Our guest is Alex St. John, a legend in the gaming industry and a visionary in the tech sphere. He has a remarkable career that spans over three decades and several continents. He was instrumental in the creation of DirectX, the technology that enabled Windows to become a successful gaming platform and was the foundation for the Xbox and Microsoft's broader success in the gaming sector. He founded Wild Tangent, one of the largest online gaming companies at the time, which grew to generate over $100 million annually in revenue. Alex and John is well known as a founder of Nuriad, a New Zealand-based company that developed a fresh and innovative approach to storing and processing data using graphics processing units or GPUs. Sadly, Nuriad is in the process of liquidating its assets. It is this that has triggered Alex to open up and to share some of his insights, viewpoints, and opinions on the Nuriad story. This comes to us along with many fascinating uh, stories and thoughts from his broader career journey in the tech startup and gaming sectors. There are many great insights to be had by all involved in the New Zealand tech ecosystem, uh, including startup founders and even for those in government who are wishing uh, to really support our gaming and tech sectors and to see them thrive. So let's jump in. And of course, as we do, a big thank you to our show partners, uh, 1NZ, 2Degrees, Spark, HP, and Guerrilla Technology. Alex, great to have you on the New Zealand Tech Podcast today. Hey, Paul, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Now, you know, I always like to kind of get a, a, a little bit of the, the background. Where, you know, where, where did you grow up? What's your, your story? Yeah, well, I have a weird background. I was raised in Alaska for 16 years in a log cabin with no water, no electricity, and no plumbing. So I lived, I grew up a very uh, subsistence lifestyle for most, a lot of my early childhood. And then my parents, uh, you know, moved back to the U.S. to take care of their parents, put me in a public high school, and I promptly dropped out and, and hitchhiked from Massachusetts back to Fairbanks, Alaska. So I didn't adjust to civilization well, and that's probably true to this day. Um, you know, it's, so I have a very strange education, mostly self-taught. Um, I got into, um, uh, I moved uh, uh, back to the U.S. Uh, when I was like 18 or 19, uh, and I really wanted to study physics and physical simulations of uh, light interacting with matter, quantum mechanics, that kind of thing. So I used to, I got a job delivering pizza so I could send myself to SIGGRAPH conferences in the 80s. 
Um, and, and so I, most of my graphics and mathematical expertise, ironically, comes from taking courses from like Jim Blinn or Jim Kajia, Jim Blinn and uh, Andy Van Dam and some of the very early graphics experts who, who taught at SIGGRAPH. I was attending SIGGRAPH when the very first Pixar movies were brought out. Um, wow. so that's, that, so oddly, a lot of my graphics education came from SIGGRAPH conferences, uh, paid yeah. for by pizza delivery. <laughs> Fantastic. And so how did, how did you get from there into the, into the workforce? Well, I wanted very badly, uh, to go to MIT and I didn't know how to get in cause I didn't have a degree. Um, and I was applying for technical jobs around the Boston area and Linotype Hell Graphics uh, had an office there and they needed a uh, customer support person for the new postscript rips that that the Germans had cloned uh, to drive these very high-end image setters. Now, just just for those uh, that are listening and we don't know what a rip is, it's the raster image processor. So it, it takes the output out of whether it's Photoshop or in those days, PageMaker was another yeah. tool uh, that I used back in those days that would have a design and it needed to, yeah. you know, basically printed out in super high resolution yeah. effectively Back using then a photographic was, process right yeah adobe would sell an adobe rip and they were a sixty thousand dollar proprietary computer to drive put an image out at eight thousand dots per inch on a laser recorder so very high-end imaging which is you know the standard for magazines they that systems got used to print u.s money at one point um or at least design it um, so very, very high quality imaging. And it was big freaking computer to do that back then. And these were the days before, you know, Photoshop was just being born. I went to the Photoshop gamma presentation on a black and white Mac and back in that in the 80s. I loved those early Macs. They were really cool. Very, yeah, very, uh, and, but that was amazing. It was magical. And I went to the demo and it just crashed constantly. So the <laughs> Apple people trying to show Photoshop were immensely embarrassed. And the whole industry, you know, at that era, I remember them just going, ah, we're going to be using giant mainframes from Germany for Photoshopping forever. Um, so I worked for the company that made multi-million dollar Photoshop, basically. Um, and the funny thing is PostScript was coming. They had cloned PostScript. They didn't want to pay Adobe. Uh, and they needed support people. And none of the many German PhDs who ran the company knew PostScript. So, you know, they interviewed me and said, you know, how many can you program? And I said, yes. And they said, well, could you learn PostScript? And I said, sure. And they said, well, we don't know if we'll believe you. Well, we'll give you a contract and a 90-day shot at a job. Um, and, uh, it, you know, I immediately learned it and, and excelled at it. And so that was my first real tech job um, uh, was, was at Linotype. And the, the weird thing about that experience, which, again, now I know it's strange, but remember, you know, I grew up in a cabin, so kind of the worst case of homeschooled kind of, uh, you know, social uh, conditioning that you could imagine. Um, the funny thing is that that this product the Germans made that I was supposed to be supporting really worked like crap. It was so broken. Uh, and so, you know, the sales guys would sell these million dollar systems to Playboy magazine and GQ magazine in New York, and they'd have to get a magazine. Those used to be printed on paper, you know, way back in the dinosaur days. Um, and it was really important to make it to press. And they try to use this German postscript rip and it would break. And they'd call me in huge panic going, we got to go to press with the magazine. This page isn't ripping. That's going through the postscript rip. And your customer support, you got to fix it. And the problem was the rip was just broken. It just didn't work. There was nothing I could do to fix it. So I'd call Germany and I'd say, you know, 
hey, this is Alex and support in Boston. I've got an important customer here and, and the rip's just blowing up on this job and they really need to get it through. You know, could we get somebody to take a look at it? And the Germans would go, ah, oh, tell them that's not what we designed the product for. I, go, <laughs> I, I, I can't tell them that. We got to fix it. No, they're using it outside the specifications that the product is intended for. Tell them not to do that. And they wouldn't help. And then I'd, wow. I'd go to the sales guy who, you know, just bought a brand new Porsche and you know, a young girlfriend to go with it uh, because with the commission he'd got selling this thing and say, um, I can't fix it. And they go, no, no, I'm not giving the, the Porsche back. I'm not losing the girlfriend from the huge commission I got from this thing. You got to fix it. Um, and so I was terrified because it's my first job ever. I'm a young guy, kid, just, just earned my way into the job. I was terrified of being fired. So I would take these PostScript jobs and I'd open up the code that was generated by, you know, Photoshop and manually hack around the bugs in the German rip to fix it. And then I'd send it back working. Um, and the problem was that that was so successful, the customers would use it more. Uh, and then all the customer support people in New York and so forth would get these problems. And, and management would say, well, send them to Alex. He, he knows how to fix that. And so I ended up spending day and night fixing just this endless thing of brokenness that the Germans wouldn't fix. And my manager saw that I was working myself to exhaustion. He said, well, do you have any ideas as to what we can do about this? And I said, well, I said, you know, another branch of the company has a different clone postscript rip made by a British company called Harlequin. Maybe they would fix things. <laughs> um, so we called up this British company in Cambridge and said, maybe you guys would fix the postscript rips. Um, and so we'll make you a deal because uh, a customer support call to me back then was like five grand. Uh, and so we said to this company, anytime I get a job from that fails on our rip, if you can run it on your rip, we'll buy one license from it for $1,500 and install at the customer site. And I was in charge of building all the installers for the product in the U.S. So I would just replace the German rip with the Harlequin one. And pretty wow. soon we replaced all of them and we didn't tell anybody. So I just, because I was sick of taking the support calls and I made the installers for everybody. So I quietly replaced the German product with one that I was basically product managing out of the UK that nobody knew about. And and the weird thing, and again, I was just trying to save my job. I was terrified and I was, you know, sweaty and I going, oh God, I hope it's not discovered that I replaced the German rip with one that actually worked so that nobody would scream at me. Um, and so I was terrified and, and the oddest thing happened, which is that hell graphics acquired linotype in that period and laid off absolutely everybody in my office, except for me and my boss, because the only successful product was the postscript rip product that was selling. And so they said they fired all the German PhDs who supported the combi scopes, all this stuff. And I remember I was very young and naive, and I'd roll around these rollerblade around these empty cubicles, uh, happy as could be, while my very senior boss is white knuckled in his office, going, "Oh my God, what happens if this kid gets hit by a bus?" Um, the punchline is, as I got told one day, the president of Linotype US is coming to meet you. He has a proposition for you, and he comes in uh, for this meeting. And again, I was very young and naive; I had no idea what was really going on. I was terrified the whole time. <laughs> And, and he says, ah, we hear you very smart and really good at supporting this product and so forth and have really made it successful. So we would like to offer you a job in Germany, working with the brilliant German engineers that you work so well with to make this product. And I was like, 
he doesn't know it's not their product. So I politely resigned and moved to England after that. (laughs) (laughs) And I got hired by the UK company, Harlequin, and I moved to England to kind of run that product team over there. Uh, And at that time, Microsoft, you know, jumping ahead, I apologize for wondering, uh, but in that era, Microsoft was very competitive with Apple in imaging and publishing for good reason, because Windows really sucked at it. Uh, And they said, you know, we got to find somebody who understands what we need to do in this space. So they opened a job to find somebody from outside of Microsoft who was probably really young because they liked that, who really understood what the company needed to do to get competitive with Apple. And, you know, I was in Seabold magazine. I was well known because we'd ended up driving Adobe out of the high-end rip business with clones of their own product. So Harlequin was very, very successful at that. Uh, and they got my name and recruited me to Microsoft, and I had no idea what I was getting myself into. <laughs> um, I had the worst case of imposter syndrome because I didn't like Windows. I was a Mac guy, right? <laughs> um, I didn't. I liked Bill Gates. I was back then. Bill Gates was, you know, like Elon Musk. He's the cool, you know, nerd. Uh, and IBM, the bad guys, you know. Uh, so I, Bill Gates was really sticking it to the man back in that era, and so I really had a lot of you know, Bill Gates is cool, but Microsoft crappy and enter boring operating system stuff. Um, so they recruited me out there and I was embarrassed because I go, I don't really know anything about Windows other than that sucks for all the things I'm good at. Um, and they put me through the Microsoft interview process and and then I, I would keep saying, I don't understand what I'm interviewing for. <laughs> and they say, Dodd, this, don't worry. This was 1992. Yeah, that was 92. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, now I understand, but again, at then at age, I was getting, so they, Microsoft was looking for what are called, they called evangelists. And these are charismatic engineers, basically an engineer really knows their stuff. Who's also incredibly articulate or pers- persuasive or charming, whatever you want to say, but weirdly social engineers. <laughs> um, and they wanted those people because the, they wanted them to promote the adoption of Microsoft technology to developers say, Hey, make your products on using our systems. And so they had people all across the organization who specialized in various branches of that. And they decided I'd be a great one of those who understood publishing. And I remember when I was, they were offering me the job and I was with Cameron Mirvold, that name significance is Nathan Mirvold's brother. That's those are the guys Bill Gates acquired to make windows. Um, So I was hired by Nathan Mirvold's brother and And Nathan said to me, and I said, I don't understand what my job is. And he said, we want you to lead the strategy to make Windows a dominant graphics publishing platform over Apple. And I was like, like I'm in charge of it all? Like I just tell everybody what to do? Uh, And which was stunning to me because a huge successful company there and I was way in (laughs) over my head. And he goes, no, 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 no. You have to do it through influence. I was like, what? (laughs) Because you have to persuade everybody of the right thing to do. I'm like, okay. So I was told my job was to drive Microsoft's vision for publishing, and I had to persuade everybody in, in this huge company. Um, and so the, the weird, to make a long story short, I was shockingly good at that and had no idea I would be. Um, so shockingly good at it that, you know, I was writing speeches for Gates, traveling around the world with him, coaching him on what to say to the press, bringing him to Seabold. And so I got, became quite a public figure on that front and actually had a, rep- a relationship with Gates at that time. So I excelled at it for strange reasons, um, so much so that by the time Windows 95 was about to ship, 
uh, all the work to make Windows 24-bit color. The video conferencing you and I are talking over, I designed the direct show APIs we're still using right now. Um, so all the work to get 24-bit color and video and color correction and gamma support and 32-bit PostScript drivers and, and true type and type one font support into the OS was done by then. It's very successful. And so I got a pleasant message with it. They basically said, look, we're about to ship the operating system. You can't make any changes. Good job. Take a break. Go work on something you feel like working on because your work here is done. Um, and, and my management said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want to do games. I think I knew that Windows 95 was breaking all these DOS games I loved. Yeah. Uh, and I like playing video games. And Windows 95 was going to break them all. So just I'm working on it. And you go, I want to play my game. And pff, it just was horrible. And I go, what a shame that Windows 95, when Microsoft, they, Microsoft didn't know about it, didn't care. Nobody thought about it. They were going to flat out level an entire little DOS gaming industry. They just didn't care. It didn't rise to any level of awareness. And I said, you know, I'd like to try to do something about that. Um, so I just kind of took it on my own initiative to go and meet with all these game companies. And I'd show up with my Microsoft business card and say, hi, I'm from Microsoft. I'm here to help you. And they'd boo and they'd do Darth Vader impressions. And I mean, they just <laughs> hated me just because of who I, where I came from, right? And then I'd have to say, I go, look, I'm sorry you hate Microsoft. I kind of understand. Don't get me wrong. But you're all dead. You're, de you're all out of jobs. Your companies are dead. If you don't work with me, because I know that they're breaking everything you do, every game you have out in store shelves that are paying your paychecks right now, Microsoft's going to hit the button tomorrow. It's going to ship on every new PC and your games are going to stop working. And they'd be like, oh, shit. Sorry, what was your name again? <laughs> and so the first thing I did is I collected up thousands of games and I just bring them to this. There's this guy's famous today. He was a hilarious personality. Um, uh, it was a, uh, uh, an engineer there who was just working on DOS compatibility, and I just flooded him with, he's got books and things published, I've got, his name will come to me in a second, I just uh, digress. But the punchline is, is that he would manually hack each DOS game I bought him, brought him in assembly language in the DOS emulator to get it to work. And I would bring these game companies in to work with him, and they saw this guy was killing himself, working day and night tirelessly with piles and piles of games, anything he could. And so these guys who hated Microsoft said, well, this guy really cares. And he's really, he has no reason, this big evil company that we hate, this guy and that other guy, you know, with the beard is going, are going overboard to save our livelihoods, even though we hate this company. Um, and so weirdly, there was a little tiny filament of a connection that, that formed. Um, and in that era, I would say to these guys, look, that's not going to last. Obviously, DOS is done for, and they're not, this can't last forever. So I said, hypothetically, what would you want from Windows to be a, a, able to run games? And they told us, and it was a huge convoluted list. And the problem was, it was too late. Windows was done. It was going to ship. And the kind of requirements to run a game were, were, were required rewriting the entire operating, a massive undertaking. Uh, and of course, I had other friends like me who are all really hardcore engineers who like games um, and, and at Microsoft, and we were in this weird transition to shipping. And so we said, well, you know, why don't we try to fix it? And so I wrote a big strategy document and sent it up the screen to Bill Gates and said, hey, Bill, the day document's public. It's called Taking Fun Seriously, too. I can send you like this thick we wrote, saying here's what we should do for gaming and the operating system. 
And it got kind of politely received. And yeah, no, we have other people and whole armies of people working on that stuff. And we already have a strategy, not gaming, but, you know, stuff we think is more important. Um, so it wasn't received. So myself and my friends got together and said, well, let's just do it anyway. Let's just build it on our own. And we did something really quite crazy in retrospect, but we were young and didn't know better. It was too late to fix the operating system. So we rewrote drivers, which, you know, drivers are things that are hardware that install to support hardware. So DirectX was implemented as a set of six media drivers that pretended to be hardware that weren't. And they pretended to be Windows compatible drivers that weren't. And what these drivers, and we shipped them in a library and gave them to the game developers. They were called DirectX. The very first DirectX game was Doom. I worked with John Carmack at id, and I had a small team, and I was using my Microsoft credit card to pay the contractors. And we ported Doom to these APIs we made that we ended up calling DirectX APIs. And what they really were were direct driver APIs. And when you installed the game, we installed the drivers, and it would push Windows out of the way and shut it down. Windows would think it was talking to a graphics card, and the driver would be going, yeah, sure, yeah, that worked great, whatever, go away. And so the game would push Windows aside, it would take over the screen, it would run great, and then when you close the game, Windows would be put back gently, and it looked like it all worked. And then I told the press, hey, did you guys know Windows 95 is going to play games great? And it was front page all over the media press, <laughs> Microsoft, Windows 95, great at gaming. So when Bill Gates would be on stage, the press would be like, tell us about how great you are at gaming, <laughs> right? And then you go, uh, hold on a second, gaming, what, what are you talking about? And then I, they go, oh, well, that's something St. John's doing. And so I'd be up there going, here, Bill's what we're doing in gaming, blah, 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 tell this to the press. And so Microsoft completely inadvertently became a game company. And, if you, and people, you know, I tell the stories because, you know, that's a little bit of an embarrassing corporate narrative. So it's a bit of a revisionist history. But if you go to YouTube and look up Bill Gates Doom 95, that's a video I persuaded Bill Gates to produce that nobody had by, it was buried. The PR people were so enraged that Bill said, sure, Alex, I'll go do your crazy video for you. That they buried it for about a decade before somebody slipped it to me and I got it out on the press. But it was a, a live video Bill did for the launch of DirectX that was only meant to be shown once. Um, and he's in Doom, blue screen into Doom, and I'm there handing him a trench coat and a shotgun, and he's doing a shitty job of reciting a script I wrote for him. Um, and that was the launch of DirectX. So Microsoft accidentally became a game platform. And uh, one of the funny jokes that, that, that you know, was hilarious years later, because we thought it was hilarious, is that that was just the very earliest days of the internet, 94, 95. It was like, oh, Netscape, yeah. what are we going to do, right? Um, and, and Microsoft had a website, and the joke around campuses, the number one search term on Microsoft's website was sex, right? And it had <laughs> been for years, right? And everybody would joke, why? You know, because it was a, it was a, you go, you know, if somebody would just make something that the, from Microsoft that was more popular than sex, that would be a win. Um, and after we launched DirectX, it was DirectX has been the number one search term on Microsoft's website ever since it was launched to this day. Sex is still number two. And we considered making a direct sex API so we could pick that up as well. But uh, somebody vetoed it. I have no idea why. Um, so the whole Microsoft becoming a game company. Uh, was a very weird uh, accidental twist of strange circumstance. 
um, and not a brilliantly planned corporate scheme that was highly analyzed. You know, we just sort of went, um, we stuck them, told the game industry that they're a game company now, and and then who was billed to say no, and oops, now we have a gaming operating system. Uh, better make a console. <laughs> well, I hope everyone's everyone's listening to that lesson because there's some good takeaways there, aren't they, around how things often yeah. often play out. And it often isn't yeah. part of this, you know, the, the best things often aren't part of anybody's strategy. Wasn't the plan. <laughs> and so, you know, I realize in retrospect, my old age, I do have a pattern of doing things like that, making a product and accidentally and shipping it and having it take over and uh, or making an operating system that, that you know, so I, I seem to have a, a tendency to just go innovate something crazy and make it become an industry standard by some strange means. And, and, and I've done it more than once. So I have to assume it's a personality trait. And, and, you know, when, when Xbox and so on came along, that was using the same, the same direct X technology, right? Yeah. It's the direct Xbox. So direct X, you can think of as it its own operating system. And the Xbox is the direct Xbox. It's the direct X OS box. Today, all of windows is built on top of direct X. So, People don't realize that DirectX was almost a separate media operating system that we just sort of parasited into Windows. And then it took over, and today all of the Windows architecture, graphics, everything sits on top of what used to be the DirectX layer because it was faster and leaner and better driver architecture. So over the years, these two kind of parallel operating systems kind of found their natural layering, if you will. Um, so well, the video conferencing we're using now is direct show, which I prototyped, you know, way back in 94. And then it's direct video and then it's DXGI today. And then there's Windows Media Services on top of that. And then Zoom and video conferencing the browser uses is all layered on top of that. So it's like 20 years of media strata on top of that low media layer that I designed, you know, 30 years ago. Now on from on from Microsoft, um, just I'm 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 mindful we don't want to run out of time. You started yeah. a company, Wild Tangent. Tell us about yeah. that because it seems you had some incredible success there. It seems really really fascinating. I'll give you the short ones, and you're free to if you say you want me to expand on them, then we can. So, ironically, Wild Tangent started with me inventing Google Maps. I had built at Microsoft um, a thing called the Chrome Media Browser. So Microsoft was about to, there's a book about it called Renegades of the Empire. So Microsoft was going to launch a browser that I had designed with the same guys who built DirectX to compete with Netscape. And it was a DirectX super media rich turbocharged browser called Chrome. And then we later, Microsoft's lawyers wouldn't let us call it Chrome. It was called, renamed it Chrome Effects. Um, and in it, Microsoft, I had left Microsoft, but they'd called me up and said, could you help us produce some of the marketing materials to launch this browser? So I started a little consulting company just to produce Chrome effects demos. And the first one I made was streaming mapping. Uh, you know it today as Google Maps because I sold them the patents. Um, and so that Microsoft said, we need something other than games to show why it's useful. So the very first demo I made was streaming mapping. Um, and the DOJ trial hit Microsoft, and Microsoft didn't want to be in the middle of an antitrust trial launching a Netscape killing browser, so they buried the project. They didn't launch the Chrome FX browser. Um, and so there I was with a consulting company and some of these cool tech, and I knew how that worked. 
And I knew with absolutely certainly Microsoft was never going to compete in the space while the DOJ trial went on. So I went to Silicon Valley and raised a few million dollars on the back of that demo uh, and founded Wild Tangent. And originally, I was going to just build general streaming media browser type technology uh, at Wild Tangent. But the dot-com bubble burst in 1998 and killed this massive whole industry of startups and VC-funded companies. And I very quickly realized that my company would be dead if we didn't focus laser sharp on something that would make revenue. So I very quickly said, forget web media, writ video and animation and 3D graphics. Let's just publish games online. So Wild Tangent quickly refocused to going, we're going to just publish games online. So we were one of the world's first online game publishers. We made the very first app stores. We had a global monopoly on all PC OEM desktops. So the Wild Tangent Game Store was on all. We used to use New Zealand as a test market. Whenever we launched new games, we would test its gameplay and pricing in New Zealand because you behave like Americans except you're contained. <laughs> How did that work? You you put different content based on an IP address yeah. or what somebody registered their address as yeah. or something? Yeah, well, we had an app store on all HP, Compact, Dell, Toshiba, Sony, Lenovo machines worldwide. So mm. all computers sold into every country, including New Zealand, had a little Wild Tangent app store. And so if we saw your IP, your, your gameplay come up in the New Zealand IP range, then we would say, let's offer the Kiwis this new game first and see how they like it. And then we'll tune the game and then refine it until the Kiwis really love it. And then we'll sell it to everybody else. Um, so New Zealand used to be our favorite test market. <laughs> I said I should oh, visit that country one day. <laughs> that's really interesting to know because we, we do often talk about that here, but I've... I, you know, there are, I think, so many instances where we, you know, we don't necessarily uh, realize it. And, and you yeah. know, sometimes it's through just a chat like this that you you find, find out. <laughs> yes. That was my greatest awareness of New Zealand at the time is that you were a great test market for American consumer gaming behavior. <laughs> okay. Um, so Wild Tangent became the world's largest online game publishing. By 2011, number one on media metrics, bigger than Zynga. 140 million uh, um, uh, users, like simultaneously monthly worldwide, really big for that era on the internet. Mm -hmm. um, and it was it was tremendous. It became after a lot of struggle, it became tremendously profitable. So I learned a lot about online game publishing and media and all that kind of stuff at a very large scale. Um, uh, and I went from there to I was saw Zynga explode and Facebook explode on social media. And I knew there was something important to learn about that uh, because it was really quite a remarkable phenomenon. So I joined High Five, which was the world's third largest social network, as president and CTO. Um, and I sold my interest in Wild Tangent because I've been doing it for a decade. Um, and I ran uh, High Five for a few years. And High Five wasn't very successful. The VCs, I was brought on board because there was a founder turnover and drama. And, and, and so they bring in a salvage management crew sometimes. Uh, and I sold the company off for them. But in that time, I did get to uh, work. Clone, we cloned the Facebook APIs. We brought a bunch of Facebook games onto the network. And I learned a whole lot about the dynamics of social gaming, which was very educational for me. But the company itself wasn't super successful. Facebook was definitely eating all of that space. Um, and so after that, it was... Um, I, yeah, Wild Tangent, I'd run, I've lived all over the world. I've run development studios. I had ran, Wild Tangent had game studios all over the world. I lived and worked in England. I love British engineers. Um, and so at the time I was going, you know, 
one of the things that's kind of sad about the U.S. is that that era of garage startups, like you see on the TV show Silicon Valley, is kind of over. Uh, and it's wonderful that we all got so rich and technology became so successful and there's all these kind of young billionaires, but the competition for talent and, and capital is so intense that the ability to just have a little idea with a few friends in a garage is just kind of too hard to do anymore. You kind of, anything worth doing, you kind of got to raise a hundred million from Andreessen Horowitz and hire 600 people at a huge pay rate before you can even get started. And so I really like that startup feel. <clears throat> and while the U.S. is very competitive and very wealthy, I worked with studios where there were very talented, underemployed people by U.S. standards, right? A lot of countries were just a lot of talent, and they just happened to be born somewhere that wasn't as wealthy or as had many opportunities. Um, and so you can get incredible people, and they were lower cost. And the one thing that was a challenge with harnessing that expertise is, you know, being American, you have to be kind of steeped in the culture Americans, just by immersion, are really hyper aware of market dynamics um, and, you know, and consumer tech and that kind of thing. And so people grow up in another country who aren't steeped in it. They don't know how to make products and services. They don't know how to think about it with the same kind of clarity. And so I always found that if I could find really talented people and get somebody with Western management background or experience who would live and work with a team in the country they were based in, you could get this amazing result. You would get really motivated, you know, capable people producing something amazing uh, to a Western standard. Uh, and that was very successful for everyone involved. And I really liked working that way. Um, so I was thinking, you know, if I ever start another company, I miss that garage-like feel. And it'd be really fun to, to go to another country again, personally, and start it there. And my reasoning for going to do, go overseas was, one, there's no downside or there shouldn't be any downside because there are a lot of countries who really want to have a Silicon Valley. There's lots of government programs. There's lots of talent. And so you can get started over there very inexpensively with a lot of support. And at any point that you've accidentally you've built a Microsoft and you need the Western capital markets or those things, you can put an office in San Francisco. It's an American company. You can still employ all those folks and you can get all the benefits of that at the point that you need it. So I saw starting my next company overseas as a great strategy for having kind of the best of all worlds. I can work with the best people at the lowest cost with as much support as possible, really de-risk it. And at any point that you really miss the stuff you get from Silicon Valley, you just open that San Francisco office like everybody does. Um, so I, was, I had had a lot of experience with a lot of countries, and I was looking hard at Singapore at the time because I'd worked with DigiPen to open their university and had a good relationship with the Singapore government. And they had all kinds of incentives to develop a game industry. Um, so I was thinking hard about going over there uh, and planning on, on stopping through New Zealand on a vacation just for fun. Cause what a pretty country and Hobbiton. Right. <laughs> and I didn't really think, Hey, I'll still do it in New Zealand. I was, I was hard on Singapore. Um, and I got to Auckland and uh, Stephen Knight, yeah. who uh, ran your gaming community there at the time. Because when I got there, I go, I want to look up the local game companies and ask them what it's like being a game company in those markets. What's the talent? What's the taxes like? That kind of thing. So he heard from, um, I was uh, meeting with some of the local game studios. He heard I was there and we had lunch and he said, you know, well, what about New Zealand? I was like, ah, it's, uh, you know, pretty here. 
sure, but uh, no, I wouldn't start a tech company here, please. But he introduced me to the uh, U.S. consulate, and he introduced me to a lot of very eager uh people really wanted to be in the game industry a lot of young talent which i really like seeing um and i talked to some game companies about the successful game companies in new zealand about the real economics of operating there um and then i have to say that when i looked at that i said you know in 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 singapore i when i did the math i go in the end it's actually still expensive there is a language barrier and talent is actually kind of scarce because the singapore government has done such a great job of creating a vibrant economy that it really isn't a low bar to entry, whereas New Zealand's still, you know, really up and coming. Um, so the funny thing is, is I remember sitting with my wife going, is it just me? Or are you thinking this might be a better plan? Um, so you're, I got back to the U.S. and your consulate general out of L.A., um, um, uh, it was your ambassador to the U.S., I think that's who it was, Leon Grace, um, called me up and I flew down to uh, uh, San Diego, I think it was, uh, to meet with him. And he said, Hey, we hear you're thinking about starting something. We'd like you to think about New Zealand and here's what we can offer you. So he, he did a really good sell job on New Zealand and I was pretty favorably disposed. And we had a, we just loved it over there. So I said, Hey wife, you know, what do you think? You want to go be Kiwis? And by the way, I was all in, I go, you know, you don't know how long, if you build a successful company, that's a, that could be a lifetime commitment. So you got to plan on leaving and not coming back. Right. Mm. Um, I thought it was entirely possible that that you'd go, okay, we're so big and successful that you got to open that U.S. office. But we left for New Zealand figuring we're going to go be Kiwis. Um, So we moved over there in, I think, 2013, 2014 um, and then and then tried to figure it out. (laughs) First, getting over the trauma of, you know, how slow shopping lines were. Yeah, walk us through that getting getting used to being being in New Zealand and uh, you know the 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 sort of shock and and yeah. you know um, yeah what what was your first sort of experience that really jumped out at you? I'm afraid to tell you because you know people get real judgy, but it uh, I think it's funny and it was genuine. But but you know people get gets you know these are some, I was living in San Francisco, right, and downtown San Francisco, and the problem like you'd go to Starbucks. And, and a meth addicted, just grungy guy would come in and there's like little college student girls trying to work for tips at Starbucks with a little tip jar and the, some grungy vagrant would come and bully them out of their tip jar and they couldn't do anything about it. And, and the tables are bolted to the floor and the, there's keypads and all the doors because it's just dangerous and dangerous, scary. And my, like when my wife got assaulted on the sub, uh, on the subway in San Francisco by one of these. And so it was sad because it's this beautiful city but but scary and and you wouldn't you you go hey maybe i'm tough and can handle it but i you never have kids there you don't want to go it's you know you can't work past you know some sunset there it's too bad um and i remember you know having that kind of i like this area and community but i i don't think you can be a family here and i get to new zealand and auckland and i i had several uh shocking experiences the first was we get off the plane and of course your phone doesn't work right and in america phone people are completely useless you go to the it's two hours and they don't know a damn thing and we walked up to the kiosk at the auckland airport and there's this guy there serving three customers at once just like bam 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 take out your chip put this in there here you need this you need this pay for that now bolt this in here's your phone working off you go and i couldn't believe it right so it's the first time, the first impression of New Zealand was 
competent phone service out of the airport, which was a sh- and ordering a hamburger at McDonald's and the people cared, like they were really attentive. Like, is it wrapped properly? Did you get your ketchup packet? Whereas, you know, in the U S it's like, there's your burger. <laughs> um, <laughs> Throw it so in just <laughs> culturally, that was the first impression. Um, and oh, the one of the biggest ones is we went and stayed at what is that casino tower that's like the space that we have? Yeah, Sky City, Sky Town. Yeah, that's the first place we stayed while we were settling in, right? And I lost the the uh, thing to the parking garage ticket, and we, you know, so we're driving around trying to get out, and we haven't got a thing. And in, in the United States, that's it. You're gonna you're just gonna find your skeleton in the parking garage. You're never getting out of a parking garage if you lose your ticket in the U.S., right? I get up there and there's the Kiwi parking attendant. And again, I don't want to be rude and sound American, right? But that's a very, in the U.S., that's a very, um, how do you phrase it? Uh, uh, that's the bottom of the employment pool. The, the parking toll booth people are, you really have very low expectations of them. And I said, I, you know, I lost my ticket. He goes, oh, what's your room number? I went, well, it's this. And he goes, hang on a second. And he calls up and he goes, yeah, I got a guest here has lost his parking ticket. Can we issue him another one? Yeah. He's like, what room number? No, make sure he gets his discount. And he fights with the guy on the phone about getting my $45 discount on the thing. Like, like he really passionately gives a damn that I not get overcharged for my parking ticket. He goes, yeah, no, he was here since Tuesday. Yeah, I'm sure he was. And then, and he's like, yeah, I'm sorry about that. Don't worry. Here's your ticket. We already got your discount. So you didn't pay for that penalties or any of that nonsense. Have a good day. Right. And I was like, wow. oh, parking attendant who like really cares about my getting not getting overcharged at the expensive hotel that right and then there's one starbucks in auckland and the coffee is better than starbucks in america which was a shock because you're really used to shitty coffee there but the thing that made an impression that i'm afraid to tell you about because it's such a contrast and and it just just i just saw it and was like couldn't help but make the association is and I didn't know at the times so I you know New Zealand's culture and racial history and all that I hadn't learned all of that stuff right I just this goes up just American Kiwi blur to me and there's a a, a a and you didn't there weren't a lot of vagrants or homeless people in Auckland but there's one just immense guy over 400 pounds six foot something just bursting out of his t-shirt like his belly's hanging out and it's and the weather is great and he's laying on a bench. And he's got a coffee can there, and he's kind of sleeping on the bench with his belly out, just enormous. Like, this guy's not missed a meal in seconds. And there's cash pouring out of his coffee can. And 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 he kind of uh, wakes up for briefly, right? And he sees the coffee cans overflowing with money, and he kind of reaches out for it like he's got to collect it. And then, ah, he's still tired and goes back to sleep with that. Uh, <laughs> right? And it was such a stark contrast. And I, again, I apologize, but it was it happened. I swear to God. <laughs> so I go, wow. I go, what kind of fantastic country where this is the difference between your vagrants and our vagrants, right? Um, so you know that was so that was my some of my early impressions. But I moved to Cambridge on purpose. In the Auckland, the government was really eager for me to set up in Auckland. I go, well, if I was going to set up in Auckland, I might as well stay in San Francisco. If I wanted competition you know for a slight discount on office space everybody hiring anybody who does hiring in new zealand's doing in auckland like i'm not really i might as well stay in san francisco um but waikato university down in the country producing an excellent computer scientists and cryptographers and anytime you hear i have a place that's got a program that's good in cryptography means that their math's got to be good yeah um and they're down there in farming country. So let me get this straight. 
the farmer's kids are getting computer science degrees at Waikato, and there is no, and that's agritech companies down there. And I said, that's where I want to start a company. I want that talent to my, I want people who are going, I don't want to shovel sheep shit every day at 5 a.m. on Sundays and Saturdays. I'd rather <laughs> wiggle my fingers for money. I want to hire those kids. Um, so we settled in Cambridge. And, and oh, the re, you know who recruited us to Cambridge? <laughs> it was Gandalf. There's a, in Cambridge, when we were driving around on, when we were first touring, yeah. we stayed at a place called Earthstead because that's where Gandalf stayed while they were filming the movie. So okay. we were doing the Hobbiton tour sure. and Earthstead's this beautiful little um, cottage in Cambridge. And, and you can see they have the guest book and there's the autograph of the actors from Lord of the Rings still in the book. And it's really quaint. And the guy who runs the thing, Alistair, looks like Gandalf, too. He's like a Kiwi wizard. <laughs> and they were the nicest people. And he went on and on about, how, you know, Waikato area and Waikato University and, and Hobbiton and so forth. Totally sold us on the area. So ironically, a year later when we moved there, he put us, because they were closed for the winter, we rented the cottages all winter and lived with them before we finally got our first house in Cambridge. So I was recruited to uh, Cambridge by Earthstead. It was Alistair made me realize that Waikato University was where, really where it was at. And he was right. He was totally right. That's really, um, it's interesting to hear. My father worked for Waikato University in the, uh, in the 1980s. And uh, yeah, he was very much a, a maths guy and a, yeah. and a computer guy that he'd you know, yeah. come out. From I don't want to reveal England. your New Zealand secrets, but as a Western <laughs> entrepreneur, there's a lot of good reasons to recruit Waikato students. That's all I'm mm. saying. <laughs> mm. Oh, that's, that's, uh, that's very pleasing yeah. to hear. Yeah. Um, so, so you got settled um, and, and, you know, w w was that much of a sort of a challenge for you in terms of, from a you know family perspective, how how did your wife feel about you know San Francisco to uh, small town uh, New Zealand? We all it was a culture shock. I, I'm a little I, I was I'd been around a little more than she had lived in other countries, so I was kind of used to it. But there's the you know like there's the trauma of not knowing what to buy at the grocery store, <laughs> um, and or and you know you'd go into a cafe. And you'd say, could I have a caramel latte, please? And they'd look at you blank, like, <laughs> what? And then they like think for a minute and they'd whisper among each other, oh, oh, do you mean a caramel latte? And like, yeah, one of those, a caramel latte. Um, so I remember there was sort of a language barrier for a while. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then really confused about the seasons. Um, that was a shock. And uh, the funniest thing, one of the, I think one of the charming and most fu funny things is that, you know, in America, especially, well, not everywhere, but in Seattle and California, you don't know who your neighbors are. You don't talk to them. If you have any relationship with them, you hate them. Um, I'm exaggerating, but maybe not much, right? <laughs> so we bought a house that was deliberately zoned residential commercial. It was Dick Street. Dick Street has ambiguous zoning. So you can have a house or it can be an office there. And it's on the fiber connecting Waikato University to the United States. Runs down that Dick Street lane. That There's a huge building in downtown Cambridge that nobody knows. It's sealed like a bunker. 
that it's the internet hub of that region of New Zealand. All the fiber flows through it, and it's just a big sealed box, and everybody goes, we don't know what's in there. <laughs> um, but it was next to that house. So I got that house precisely because it could be used as offices. And and the funny thing was that the neighbors were so freaking friendly, and it was that was like the grocery store thing going, oh, we we have to be nice to people. And the, and this was really traumatizing. Like, you know, if you want to call, send an American over the room, you, you come home and you go, how come our fence is fixed? My wife would be like that 86 year old guy said, came over with some pieces and said, he'd take care of it and fixed it. He just fixed our fence. Does he want any money? <laughs> right. <laughs> and it was so traumatizing. Have Kiwis like leave fruit for you or fix something in your house or your yard. Just, they dropped over and fixed it. Oh my God. <laughs> right. In America, just call the police. Where's my lawyers, you know? Um, so it took, it was real hard to adjust to. Wow. And, then, and we wouldn't recognize that of course, cause it just, this is no. New Zealand, right. So right. You, know, you sounding shocked about that. It's, um, and I'm yeah, embarrassed, yeah. right. I'm embarrassed. We're, well, there's all, you know, I won't even get you the politics because Americans are very confident in their politics. And I got over there and you messed up my politics badly because <laughs> the, the way you operate was so different that it just screwed with all of my life convictions. <laughs> Um, the mo I'll give you a one without without opining on the meaning of it. One of the bizarrest things was how garbage collection was handled in Cambridge, because we go and get this house, and you go in the U.S. is like there's only one. The city picks up your garbage, and you pay them whatever you have to, and you buy the bins the way they tell you to buy the bins, and that's the only way to deal with garbage. Um, and so we got there, and they like give you a menu of garbage options. You can. For these, you can call this. For that, you can do this. You can drop it here. But the most amazing thing was that you could go through the grocery store and buy these yellow bags with, like, coupons on them for a few bucks. And you just put garbage in them and drop the bag anywhere. Just, wee! <laughs> and, so, and because it had a bounty on it, anybody could pick it up and get money. And so you could people could just throw their garbage anywhere in those bags, and it would quickly, everybody's like, ooh, I want that bag of garbage to deliver. Um, so it was the most remarkable and whether that could work in America, I have no idea, but it was just baffling to me. <laughs> um, so what people would, people would pick up the bags for the, for the value yeah, of the was, tag and then they would include it when they were going off to, uh, yeah, they get, go take get, it to the dumpster and I guess they, they got money for that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I didn't do it. I just was amazed that you could, and you go, where do I put the bag anywhere? Just anywhere in sight and it'll, poof. <laughs> There's no garbage, right? There's, I hadn't was, heard of that. Yeah, <laughs> I'd never imagined it either. Well, other I won't get into it, but there, you know, you guys can have a really fascinating culture from an American point of view. Um, so the punchline was we loved it, and, and and again, it was hard to get used to liking your neighbors and not living in sort of American isolationism, which not making eye contact or even grunting hello to each other in the morning. You have to stop. You have to talk for twenty minutes. You have to get all the news and. Um, so that, and then, and weirdly after a while, you really start to enjoy it. And then you start to forget how hard you're supposed to work to make a tech company, which, you know, was one of the challenges. <laughs> um, I get it. I it was very tempting. Right. Um, so yeah, we had a great relationship with neighbors, which was very funny because, you know, at first I started just working in the garage by myself, building stuff. Uh, and my intention was to go to Waikato university and say, Hey, I'd like to start an internship. I want college computer science majors before they graduate there 
I need to get them trained and getting them work experience before you've handed them a degree because there's so much that they need to learn that college doesn't teach. Uh, so my intention was to go recruit college students. And I'm in town and, and some kids bang on my door because Kiwis just do that, knock on strangers' houses and go, hi. <laughs> um, so these kids in barefoot knock on my door and they're like, are you the Xbox guy? And I went, well, sort of. I mean, I, I, I made the stuff before that. Uh, and they go, yeah, we heard there was an Xbox guy in town. I go, well, you know, to the extent this town has an Xbox guy, it would be me. And they're like, well, we want to learn all about gaming and what are you doing and what's here, right? Can we come in here? So they come in the house and want to see the garage and what I'm doing out there and want to just, you know, show them what I'm working on. And, and, and they're saying, yeah, we're, you know, I'm a, one of them, Tyler Hale was like 15. He's like, I'm a, making websites for a local real estate company. And Xavier Simmons was, you know, I'm into music, uh, but they were just, you know, really excited to have a gaming guy in town. Um, and I told them and they said, you know, can we, you know, learn to do that stuff too? And I said, look, I'm, I'm really busy in your kids, but, um, I'll tell you what I'll do. If you want to come in my garage after school, I'll, you know, open the door and I'll put you to work. I'm just going to give you things to do. And I don't have time to walk you through everything. So if I give you a task, the rule is figure it out by any means and only bother me if it's an emergency, I'll check in on you once in a while if I'm not busy, but I can't be distracted. I got to do, you know, real serious work. And these kids would show up after school and I'd go, you know, see that busted ass computer, make it work. Right. And they'd kill themselves fiddling and figuring it out. Right. And then, and then, um, I said, well, you know, you want to learn how to code? Then I'd say, write CUDA Conway game of life. Right. Which was actually a pretty advanced computer science thing. I'd say, do it. And I go, that'll keep them busy forever because it's a huge learning curve. And they'd kill themselves, just ages and looking up everything and struggling. And then one day they're showing me Game of Life. And, you know, sometimes I'd check in and go try this, try that. But I really didn't pay a lot of attention to them. Um, and long story short, it wasn't long until I had dozens of kids in my garage all the time working on computer science projects. And the projects were getting more and more advanced. And I'd have mothers knocking on my door with their kid going, my kid seems a little socially dysfunctional. Is it possible he's a nerd? And I said, well, we can find out. <laughs> I'm not kidding you, right? Weirdly, um, I would have, um, and this is, you know, I think one of the, you know, one of the best stories from my point of view, but I'll be, I'll be a little vague for the sake of the individuals unless they ever want to raise their hands. But I had kids who were flunking out of school, just failing at it, right? And the sad thing was in America, Americans would look at those kids and go, those are nerds, Right. They're not, they're not social. They're not, those are nerds. And, and if you put them in the right environment, they're going to thrive. And it's not a very social, you know, typical environment. Um, and so these kids were really failing. And one of them came to me and he said, he came to one of our open houses where we just, my wife would feed everybody and say, hey, here's what we're doing in the garage if you want to work on projects. Um, and he said to me, hey, I really want to do this, but, but I don't think my parents will let me. Can we keep it a secret from them? And I said, well, why do you need to keep a secret from your parents? Because, well, I'm kind of failing out of school. Um, and, I, and I told them I don't want to go to college. Um, and so they won't let me, you know, do anything until I get my grades up. And I go, well, I can't let you keep it a secret from your parents. But I'll make you a deal. I said, I got to talk to your parents. But I'll make you a deal. If you come and you finish high school and you come and, and work on the stuff that I'm telling you to do and pursue a computer science degree, uh, and there's actually a backstory because I'd met um, 
Bill Rogers at Waikato at that point formed a relationship with Waikato University. I said, I'll, if you do what I say, we can get you one of these Waikato scholarships and you can skip the last year of high school. You can skip the first year of computer science and two years of computer science degree for free from Waikato and you're done. Um, and so I said, you know, if you want to come in my garage and you agree to do that and your parents are down with it, then we can do it. And so he brings his parents by and I said, you know, look, I'm sorry, I've got some bad news from you. Your, your child's probably a nerd and they're never going to function socially like ordinary healthy children, I'm sorry. Um, they probably obsessively want to relate to computers for their career. And if we let, I'm exaggerating, but if you let them do that, they may be very, very successful at it. Uh, and I said, look, you know, I'll put this kid through the program. And if Waikato gives him one of these, if he passes one of the Waikato's tests that Bill Rogers at that point was administering, uh, I go, here's what'll happen. Uh, and the parents agreed. And so this kid uh, skipped his last year of high school. He aced the Waikato exam, got one of the scholarships. I have video of him getting it, ironically, and passing the test. He was elated. And then he finished his degree there in two years. And he was extremely brilliant and just took off at, at Myriad. And he uh, later on got a big job at Google and moved to Australia, making shocking amount of money for a 20-year-old. And then he is now uh, a really uh, accomplished working on what are called Starks, which is this amazing new uh, cutting-edge cryptographic um, uh, data structure for an Israeli company. So he went from you know flunking out of high school to having a, a really amazing career. Um, and, and there were a lot of the kids that did that. Tyler Hale had a similar story. He kind of had a Harry Potter living under his cupboard kind of story. And now he's an artificial intelligence cloud deployment engineer in England, working at an artificial intelligence company. Xavier Simmons, who was one of the first teenagers, is at NVIDIA um, uh, in California doing extremely well. So these earliest kids that came down there and do that just have tremendous tech careers. And the only sad thing about it, Paul, and this is probably the thing you, you know, maybe another interview, I don't know. The sad thing about it is they all had to leave New Zealand to do that. So mm. they're, they're all gone. So if you look at all the kids who kind of came through that garage and, and really, you know, then we, we showed them how to be really accomplished as nerds, they left New Zealand and, and they'll probably never come back. Um, and, and that's kind of a shame, right? And I understand why they'd have to. They just isn't, there wasn't another near, there wasn't an ecosystem of nereids for them to develop and get the skills and they would never get the kind of experience and scale and compensation as well that they get outside New Zealand. So they, and, and those Western companies know they're valuable. There's massive competition. So they're like, oh, look at all the Kiwi talent Alex made and harvesting them away. Um, so in some sense, I'm very proud of, you know, those kids, uh, you know, my wife, they're all family. Uh, but I, 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 what I really wanted to do was have them build tech companies in New Zealand. Um, yeah. And, and, and hopefully there's, a, there's at least a little bit of that going on, but, um, there's also that opportunity and, and yeah, it may not, may not seem, uh, like it's going to happen, but hopefully we'll see some of those that have gone off overseas, uh, you know, ultimately find, yeah. find a, a place back in New Zealand. And, yeah. uh, you know, these are things that we have to work on. Yeah. I think that's the question is why do they come back? And, and more importantly, why do they come back and start companies? Cause that's what you really need them to do. Yeah. Some of these things have been going on for a long time where, where 
some of the best and brightest will go off to other parts of the world and build their their you know billion dollar businesses and so on and 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 don't necessarily sort of you know yeah bring that back but of course it, these things happen in New Zealand too so it's it's how do we how do we get that that right so that uh, you know we yeah. we get we get more of it happening in New Zealand and I'm I'm definitely keen to kind of circle back in on those perspectives but let let's talk about the, the um you know starting of of, of Nuriad and uh, yeah. you know how you know how things evolved there for for that to uh, yeah. take place so I had initially intended to found uh, a company to compete with Minecraft. I was going to build a, a, a large-scale MMO, which to a certain extent is what I'm doing today in a different form. MMO, of course, for anyone that isn't aware, stands for Massively Multiplayer uh, Online Game. Uh, it's an online video game with, with a large uh, number of, uh, of players that are, that are able to interact and, and play against each other. So I went there to build an MMO company and, uh, but you know, this is a kind of, you have to get the, you don't just throw down and start a company. You kind of got to learn the laws, the regulations, where's the talent, how do you function? Um, so I was consulting around New Zealand a little bit and getting, trying to get involved in the community. And one of the things that happened is I got invited to speak at the um, Square Kilometer Ray teleconference uh, in, uh, at Auckland University. Because, of course, the Square Kilometer Array project, which I'd never heard of before, was involved some of the world's largest supercomputing on GPUs, right? And I'm the father of GPU architecture. So and I was for those invited... that don't know what the, the Square Kilometer Array is, can you just... Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, the, uh, it's really exciting. Um, so the short answer is that um, uh, one of the things, and it's one of the greatest sort of epic visions, even if it's not, they're struggling to execute it well. I love the big thinking, but essentially what they're trying to do is they're saying, uh, in order to, if you ever watch the James Bond movie where he slides down this giant dish, I'm trying to remember which one it is in Chile, right? So that's a radio telescope. And those radio telescopes pick up infrared radiation that's, you know, very old and a very long distance away. And the quality of the image they collect is proportionate to their size. And at some point, you really don't want to pave over an entire Amazon jungle to make a dish big enough to image the universe. <laughs> so the Square Kilometer Rye guys have a brilliant idea. They said, you know, the southern half of the planet Earth, Africa and Australia, a lot of it's just empty desert. So what if we just put a bunch of antennas, they look like piles of coat hangers, and just scatter them all over these deserts and then we'll just, instead of making a giant dish, we'll just put these antennas all over the place. We'll hook them all up to cables. And we will computationally, mathematically, turn the entire southern hemisphere of the planet Earth into a dish the size of half the size of the planet. So that as the planet rotates, it's imaging half the universe. So incredibly ambitious science. Uh, and the universe is about 44 billion light years across in either direction. And a telescope, a radio telescope that size is said to be able to eavesdrop on a cell phone on the opposite edge of our galaxy. That's how powerful it is. That's so insane. an absolutely crazy vision. And it gets even cooler than that because the funny thing is you go, well, why? What do you want to know about the universe? Well, we kind of want to see all of it. Just like Imagine in 1492, if you said, wouldn't it be nice to have a, a globe of the earth with like everything on it, but all they have is half a planet, <laughs> right? And everything is not in place. 
So, you know, we're going to sail around, try to have a map of the whole planet we live on. Well, these guys are trying to get a map of the whole universe we live in. Every galaxy, every star, every planet. Every planet might be extreme, but everything. Uh, and the funny thing is that that at the very dawn of time, during the very birth of the universe, um, these supermassive quasars collapse, these, these solar objects early in the universe. And so the first stars that collapsed and became spinning pulsars, these stars expanded with the universe to the very edge of time so that today, if you have a telescope sensitive enough, they're spinning at the speed of an atom at the very edge of the universe. And their light is so old and they spin so fast that they're like a GPS's systems that God put at the edge of the universe at the beginning of time to help us navigate. Um, I'm not actually that religious, but it's, it's a beautiful thing. So what mm. these guys are saying is in order to map the universe, we have to triangulate where everything is very precisely. And the way we do that is we need to find 150,000 of these pulsars from the birth of time that are now at the edge of time and spinning at the speed of an atom so that we can coordinate, triangulate where everything else is in the universe. And that in 25 or 50 years, if everything goes according to plan, we'll have a globe 90 billion years across of the universe we live in with everything on it, just we, like we have a globe of the planet. So it's incredibly powerful and beautiful vision. And, and like I said, I'd love to see that happen. And the amount of computer science it takes to make it happen is beyond imagination. And of course, the chips that they have to process that kind of thing this are the GPUs that, that we worked to create to play video games. So a GPU is a graphics processing unit, and... GPUs didn't exist until DirectX. So DirectX enabled 3D hardware acceleration in the Windows operating system for gaming. So that all the competing chip companies who made Windows two-dimensional graphics chips became 3D chip companies. And so uh, a lot of them died off from competition, but ATI, now AMD, and NVIDIA became the world's largest suppliers of these chips which were just made for gaming early on, but now they're the most powerful physics and artificial intelligence processors we use for scientific computing. So I got asked to advise or consult on how to build a supercomputer capable of doing the kind of processing they need using GPUs because I'm an expert at it. And the funny thing was, you know, there's lots of great stories about how the square kilometer array relationship started. But the first one was I shot my mouth off to these uh, academics, bunch of PhDs, don't understand computer science. Sure, they think they're smart and it's a hard problem, but how hard can it be? Um, <laughs> uh, and they, uh, you know, long story short, they said, you know, the amount of electricity it's going to take to power the computer we need is more than the budget of all 12 participating countries. Uh, we got to get this power way down. And they sent me a four-year transform, which is what they use to generate the images, on the GPU and said, could you optimize this? And I said, ah, no sweat. I'll me tune that up for you and get it faster. Uh, and I got, and I spent weeks and weeks in the code and I couldn't, I got it half a percent faster. Somebody far, far smarter than I expected had already optimized that code and everything I tried failed. And so I was afraid I was going to go have, have to go back to these guys going, look, I know I'm the big shot GPU guy for the life of me. I can't get any more speed out of this algorithm. And I really didn't want to have to go tell them that. Uh, and so I was like, crap, this algorithm is as optimal as it can get. I can't think of another way to get faster. How am I going to 
how am I going to, you know, save face after I shot my mouth off? <laughs> so I called up my friends at NVIDIA and I said, hey, I'm working with these guys in the square kilometer array. And uh, I, they asked me to optimize this Fourier transform and it's optimal. But I said, you know, if you modified the Fourier library in your uh, library to take these 8-bit values and expand them to 32-bit on the, on the GPU, the result would be about a 4x speed increase. But I can't do that. It's your driver. And so they did that. And then I went back to them and said, here, it's four times faster now. And they're like, whoa, how did you do that? And I said, well, I called NVIDIA. And they were like, you can do that? You can, you can call NVIDIA and go help and they'll just do it? And I go, well, I can. I mean, I, I think they'd probably, if they understood what you're doing, they'd be eager to help. <laughs> so they were like, oh, wow, this guy's got some magic, man. He can call NVIDIA and they'll just poo four times faster. Um, so that's actually where probably the basis of where all my credibility ended up really coming from on that front was when they saw that trick. Um, <laughs> uh, but so anyway, they gave us, uh, so I was planning on making a game company. I had kids just, again, a funny, they just, I was just accumulating them in my garage because, you know, they liked being fed and yelled at for not working harder. You know, it's like, <laughs> they go, ah, oh, this is hard. And I go, are you going to give up yet? They're like, um, no, I go, right, keep it up. They go, well, you know, don't you have the answers? I go, what kind of engineer would you be if, if the no problem worth solving is answered? That's the job, is, is solving problems nobody has the answer to. So if you aren't excited about figuring it out and need the answer from somebody, you're not going to be a successful engineer because it's a, that's the job is inventing. And I used to tell them that all the time. And the Square Kilometer A came along and they said, well, you know, uh, talk to us about getting contracts to, to prototype some of the ideas I had for reducing the power consumption. Uh, and I would have these kids prototype them and Xavier freaking Simmons. Um, um, uh, he, you know, he was like 16 when he started, maybe he's 17 when he started on this. Uh, and I just gave it to him as a torture test because the square comrades guys said, look, this vast volume of data coming in, the biggest part of the power consumption is storing it all. So, and I'm not a storage expert, just storing it all is a problem. And um, one of the Waikato professor's parents, kids whose parent was a professor at Waikato who was in the garage said, you know, have you thought about Reed Solomon ratio encoding? I said, what's that? And he goes, well, it's a Fourier transform for distributing information across a lot of things. It's the superset of RAID storage. I hadn't ever heard of it. We studied the algorithm. I looked at the math and I said, wait a minute. So all the supercomputer does is massive Fourier transforms. And this algorithm is a way of distributing the computation uniformly across all the nodes. Uh, and it's a Fourier transform. I said, then if you did that, you wouldn't have to move all the data back and forth over a network to a storage array. You would just mathematically process it and store it in place. Well, that would stop all the data movement and should save like 50 to 70% of the power. And I showed the idea to the professors. They said, yeah, that might work. We'll come up with a quarter million to prototype that. Uh, and so Myriad was founded with a bunch of high school kids at that point. And the 16-year-old kid who liked music, Xavier Simmons, you know, I was like, hey, Xavier, I need you to figure out how to do a Fourier transform and implement Reed Solomon coding. And he hadn't had linear algebra any advanced math. I just threw some textbooks at him. <laughs> he goes, what's that? And I go, read this and this and this, and here's the paper. It works like that. Go figure it out. And of course, the kid killed himself. He ultimately wrote the world's fastest read Solomon erasure encoding on the GPU. And so if you look at the early Nereid demos where I'm just able to rip out drives and the whole thing stays working, it was written by that kid. He's the one at NVIDIA now. It was 
rightly where he uh, you know should be at with that huge IQ. But yeah, was... we, we need to include that video, actually. Um, yeah. And it sounds like there's more than one, but yeah, I mean... That there's, was... there's, up on, there's several up on my LinkedIn. Yeah, it certainly caught my attention, uh, you know, some yeah some some yeah. years back when I saw that and uh, was scratching my head trying to work out uh, how, oh, how, how how that happens. <laughs> it's pretty oh, yeah, these kids went, you know, I the funny thing is I go, look, I'm proud of myself, it sounds impressive, but these kids went way beyond anything I expected. Like, uh, again, uh, well, so I'll name a name and you guys put, but Andrew Milson, who did the blockchain stuff for me, he was a web kid and, and just blockchain storage architecture and implemented and prototype. Mark Wilson, who you know, um, uh, doing the the uh, exa, these voxel space um, data search on a GPU, and he did that demo. If, I think that video's up there. So these high school kids who didn't even have a formal background math, I would just, you know, throw hard problems at them and act as though it was there, you know, it perfectly solvable and they, they would solve them. Uh, and I'd never seen anything like that in my life. I never expected that. So the funny thing is I had great success with the college students I hired, but the most amazing th- successes and the most amazing thing I experienced there was these high school kids who would wander in and turn into some of the most amazing tech geniuses. And now it's been a year decade and you can see where they're at. You go, look at where they went. You know, these kids would have been, you know, maybe doing real estate web design in Cambridge if if they hadn't, you know, had their potential realized in some form. So it is it was quite remarkable. And Bill Rogers at Waikato really is the one who since that relationship, um, because I went to Waikato University while they were still just building PCs in my garage and said, here's what I want. And I had a funny meeting with the computer science dean's office because you know, he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I, I want to get these guys in here and I want to put them under real pressure to ship software. And, and he goes, well, they're, but they're students. I go, right. Uh, great. I hope that they're having a struggle keeping up with their studies. And I want to add on top of that. And he's like, well, why do you want to do that? And I go, cause I got to get their nervous system to Western technology shipping momentum. Uh, and that's got to be done young, done young. Uh, and Bill Rogers, who was sitting there, and it's the first time we met, he goes, sounds like you're running a sweatshop. And I said, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I'm doing. And he was surprised. <laughs> I was like, yes. And, and he was like, you know, and he was like, well, why are you proud of that? And I go, because that's how you got great, get great. And that's how I got great. Uh, and he goes, well, it seems like it'd be really stressful. I go, yes, it's too much for ordinary people. But for people who are going to be nerds, they're going to love it. It's all they'll ever want to do. And yeah, it'll select for them. The people who are going to be great, they'll they'll love it and thrive on it. And everybody else will go, oh, hard work, ah, right? And that's okay because they're they're the ones I'm looking for. And Bill Rogers said, well, can I? I want to see this. Um, and he came by uh, my garage. I said, yeah, just drop by. And at the time, he didn't know I had a bunch of high school kids hanging out there. I didn't mention it. I hadn't, I didn't think anything of it at the time other than I was putting up with some kids because everybody was nice to each other in New Zealand. I was trying to join in. (laughs) Um, And so he comes to the garage and he sees all these high school kids killing himself, working on projects and doing little CUDA, you know, game of life and that kind of stuff. He goes, what's this? And I go, oh, they just show up and I make them do projects for me. And then he explained that he ran the Waikato University Scholarship Program and that he had a hard time getting qualified students from local high schools because the computer science programs from his view were maybe a little weak. Um, And so he said, you know, we really try hard to get qualified students and there isn't a lot. And he said, 
can I test these kids? And I said, oh, sure, absolutely. Uh, I'd love to see. I have no idea because I don't, the funny thing is I go, yeah, I, mean, I whiteboard and talk about tech a lot in front of them, but I don't really teach them. I make them work. That's what I do is I say, here's a really hard problem and, and don't show up if you're going to give up on fixing it. That's what I do to them. Uh, and so he said, I'm going to, I do the scholarships this time. I will come by and I'll administer them to your kids. And I did, I've got video of me doing this. And this is another one of the stories that when I tell it, people look horrified, but I'm telling you, this is the way nerds are made <laughs> in some form. Um, is that, uh, you know, cause I, I'd say to him, um, look, you know, Bill's coming by tomorrow to do the scholarship. Right. And I go, I don't have time for, you know, wet nursing you through a classroom environment and so forth. So I go, we're going to do this once. Um, I go, here's the test quizzes that he hands out the, from the previous years that people are allowed to review. I go, and so here's how it goes. I want you to all read them. And then we're all going to line up outside by my pool. And you're going to stand by the edge of the pool with your heels over the edge. And I'm going to throw these questions at you at random. And if you miss one, I push you in. <laughs> <laughs> now, before, so I'm going to tell the story the way I told it to them. And then I'll tell you the truth because most of them to this day don't know this, right? So I get up there and I'd start throwing questions and I'd be seem you know, good and angry, like a, you know, millet drill sergeant. And I'd go, you know, what's the square root of negative one? I good. Right. Oh, how would you equate this in this algorithm? Right. And I do the kind of like, if you're hesitating, right. And I'd make them spit out the answer. And then, you know, one gets it wrong in the pool, they go now between you and I, I'd arranged it with the kid and their parents in advance because the only thing that was important about the exercise is that the rest of them be terrified that I'm going to really push them in the pool unexpectedly. <laughs> so you always have to push one in the pool for the others <laughs> to believe you mean it. Uh, part of the uh, the programming. But these guys, the, the message you go, oh, look, we're not going to practice and get a B and maybe get half of them right. I expect you to know it all flat out on one try or don't waste my time. And so these guys would spit out every single answer without flaw. And the only one who got one wrong was scripted and they never knew that. Um, and I get a volunteer secretly every year and arrange with the parents going, look, we're going to do this exercise, hey, you know, will your kid be up for going in the pool. <laughs> uh, and they thought it was a lot of fun. Right. But I never told, nobody knew this um, unless they told them afterwards, but it worked. And, and so then they do the, take the test and these kids, almost a hundred percent of them got scholarships. They, and there was only 10 that, that Waikato gave out every year. And we would have usually about three coming out of the garage um, every year to Waikato. And Bill Rogers was the first investor in Neriad. He, we still have the Kiwi dollar he sent after he, you know, he came down and he saw it. And because those students that we sent up there aced computer science at Waikato, we were working them 60 to 80 hours a week. My wife was shuttling them back and forth to their classes. She was serving them breakfast and lunch and dinner. They were sleeping on the couches and floors and coding. And they, and I tell them, you flunk out of school and you're out of here. And so they were killing it at school and they would all graduated early with top marks and Bill Rogers, like these are the best students we ever have. So Bill and I, Bill became a believer. He's like, whatever that crazy Americans doing to these, we were getting the highest quality students we've ever seen. Um, and, and, you know, and I said, it's, you got to put them under pressure. It's nerds, people who are really going to take to this, they need the challenge. They, they, you got to challenge them. If it's not intense, then it's not interesting. Right. Uh, and so that batch, that generation of kids grew up really well. And, and I had a great relationship with 
uh, Bill after that, even though, you know, he, he said I was running a sweatshop. <laughs> Well, I'm glad I'm, I didn't. I'm, I'm picking. There's a, there's a, there's a little bit of exaggeration in your yeah. uh, that they were studying and doing 60 to 80 hours a week. No, no, ask them. I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> you would not believe the link. I can show you the picture. We thought that was hilarious. So to be clear, my wife served breakfast, lunch, and dinner. She'd shuttle them to class. She'd shuttle them back to the office. Uh, there were just we just had couches and mattresses everywhere. And so she, you know, they were like our kids. So she would take photos of them. So we used to, she have a montage of kids sleeping at their desks or sleeping on the couch or sleeping in one of the chairs. So we have the most hilarious, and like we had cats that thought that sleeping engineers were the best pillows. So we have this hilarious montage of all these kids that are just crashed out at their desks with a cat on them or so forth. Um, you know, they really were working that hard. That that part's not an exaggeration. There's certainly a lot of American hyperbole in here. Don't get me wrong, but but uh, you know, I I can't believe how how extreme those guys, those some of those early kids went for it. Um, right. And so that was that was that was their choice to 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 push themselves. Well, certainly, your friends with Mark Wilcox. He was yeah. one of them. Ask him. Yeah. Yeah, right yeah, ask yeah. wilcox bring him on and say what was it like working for alex did he crack a whip or you know was the food and the energy just too much fun you know and it's probably a little bit of both i always you know i how do you phrase it i work all the time because i'm one of those people i i love yeah, it yeah so certainly if you were around me people saw that i was working 24 7 saturday you know sunday day and night so I, they certainly if they were you know, if I was any kind of role model, they certainly saw that that the American guy who was famous didn't stop working. Um, and so from that point of view, sure. But, you know, your friends with Wilcox, ask him. He was there. Yeah, see what he yeah. says. I, I'm just thinking there were going to be, you know, people that will hear that in isolation and will will think yeah. bad things. But when we yeah. when I hear the whole story, what I'm hearing is as yeah. amazing things that well, come, I get it, come out the, of that. And even when I think of yeah. myself as a youngster, when I got involved in the yeah. In the in the tech world, um, you know, I I was young, single, and uh, and I could yeah. work till midnight on a yeah. on a nightly basis, and and I enjoyed that. Yeah, you can't explain it. Yeah, there's yeah. but there's some, I guess yeah. there's some some norms today that uh, that certainly, uh, you know, that certainly the norm um, well, in the tech sector is very different to that, isn't it? Yeah, and I think there's an easy way to explain it because I because people don't get it. I go look. A tech startup, it's not a company yet. Uh, it's a company when it has a product that makes money. Um, before then, it's an Olympic sport, right? So you're trying to, raising capital and, and surviving to make a payroll is getting a gold medal and everybody else loses and dies. And the people who get gold medals are not mediocre by any stretch. So when you think about what it means to found and run tech companies, you know, it's a, an Olympic sport. It's not a business in that sense. Um, yeah, and, and I think I think there's some, um, yeah, there, there there are some important differentiation differentiations there. And you know, I've had conversations with a lot of people over the years that are describing this sort of lifestyle. Yeah. Um. And and you know, I've, I've often struggled to get my head around it. Well, you know, what about the family? What about you know the marriages? What about the you know all the yeah. the, the, the downsides? Um, yeah. Well, it, there's easy answers to that, right? The that lifestyle is for you when you're young and single, and mm. and the people who do it in America get very very valuable and highly paid because of that experience. 
And so by the time they're in their 30s or 40s and getting married and having kids, uh, over here in this area, they're making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and going home at 5 p.m. But it's that experience in youth that got them to that. And, and the, again, as I think it's a fascinating phenomenon because it is quite mind-boggling how much expertise it takes to be that valuable, but they really get that way. But it's done under fairly intense conditions. Um, mm. And that's the other thing I liked about Cambridge is the whole town took pride in being an Olympic town, training town. And I go, that's, that's what making tech startups are. If you look at a graph of how tech startups fail, it's, you know, 90% die at this stage, then 90% die at this stage, then 90% die at this stage, and then Facebook, right? And so if you recognize that that attrition rate is that aggressive, it's very hard to get people to understand that you got to create an environment that is very competitive and aggressive, or you're not going to make it because it, that's, that's the nature of the business. Uh, and I think it is a business for the, I, weirdly now, I, I shocking, I go, you know what it is, it's a business for the young, and weirdly it's a business for the old, because your kids are all grown up, made plenty of money, and I still love it. So I like doing it now, but there's that middle phase where you go, no, just get a job at, you know, Microsoft and take a paycheck home. Don't, you know, or not Microsoft, you know, Microsoft today, not, you know, in the nineties. Um, yeah. But, yeah. but don't do that crazy startup thing. If you got a wife and family and, and six kids, that's, that's way too stressful. Yeah. Yeah. And I, rem yeah, I remember a, a chat with um, Alexis O'Hanion who, um, you know, co-founded Reddit. And uh, when I, when I spoke to him, I think he was in that sort of phase of, of of operating and i was you know uh i you know i was yeah really struggling to get my head around it now you know now like i think in the last sort of five six years yeah. he married serena williams and you know probably his his journey's changed a bit and yeah uh, um you know prop pro probably isn't isn't working those sort of uh hours yeah. now right yeah. and that's the thing is that and the thing that's hard to explain to people is you got to go yeah and it's definitely not for everybody but this is an alien idea there's a small set of people for which the lifestyle of living in the mind of a computer and doing something amazing is so, you know, it's like being an artist and you got to have a passion for it. And for those people, it's not work. It's never worked for me. And the people who I experience, they don't experience it that way. Um, and, and so certainly, and certainly in your youth, right. Is again, when you get to having other priorities, right. And it's nice at that stage in your career, when you're getting married, having kids or doing any of those things, to have become so accomplished and experienced that your value is no longer how hard you work, but how good you are at communicating to others and managing and articulating that. So all that ex personal experience converts to leadership and management when you want to go home at five <laughs> one day and still be paid a lot. Um, and, and so that's, that's, you know, I go to the case and go, yep, it's not for everybody. So people go, well, so-and-so really hated it and it was too hard for him. I go, I, yeah, they're probably not cut out for it. And that's, it's okay for it not to be for everybody, but it is a shame if you really condemn the people who do live it because it is, uh, you know, they love it and it's really good for them and they're really happy at it. And it is sad when there are people who won't understand that there are some people who are just going to be happy living in the mind of a machine all the time over, you know, doing the other things that normal social people value highly. Yep. Yep. I hear you. No, that's, that's, uh, that's good to, to delve into that. Yeah. Yeah. Where did, where did things go from, uh, you know, from, from there? Because uh, obviously you, you were ultimately attracted, you know, millions and millions of funding, um, yeah. you know, I think things grew to, you know, to quite some, 
some some scale through to through to where we are now where you know you've exited yeah. and, and sold out of the business and yeah. and i think you know the company's up for, for sale at the moment but um yeah what what are those yeah. sort of intervening bits that uh, you know people might be able to learn from all the vision worked great until it didn't right and yeah it's yeah. interesting when i look back and you go what are the you know, because I asked, you know, one of the things is I came to New Zealand with a lot of Silicon Valley VC support. The VC said, whatever you do, Alex, you know, let us in on it. So I came over quite confident that if I wanted to do something in New Zealand and it had the right properties, I'd go and money would arrive. Um, and then, you know, the market changed while I was away. So thanks. Uh, but one of the warnings I got a lot of was, you know, there are not many Western VC funds who are going to be comfortable with New Zealand governance or founded companies. They really aren't set up to invest in companies that are not American and do not, can't sign up to Western governance standards to a high degree. Um, and, you know, I was like, hey, yeah, okay. I didn't take it super seriously at the time. Uh, and, and I realized one, they were, it was turned out to be very true and for good reason. So I was naive about that. Uh, and so I think one of the biggest mistakes I made in New Zealand, and again, it's a sad, I would, I wanted to, it would be great to make it a New Zealand company, but Neria needed to become a U.S. company much earlier. Uh, and unfortunately in my experience, in some sense, the success and the momentum Neria had had in New Zealand made it a point of national pride, uh, and, and I struggled with I, you know, all those stories I told you about coming to me. I go, hey, I want to come and be a Kiwi, right? But, you know, I'm an asshole American by comparison to these people. And, and so I want to add value, but I don't want to add negative. There are a lot of things about I realize about being American that I'm kind of happy to leave behind. I don't want to bring that here. This, is, this stuff is good the way you have it. Um, and so I didn't... So, the fact that it, the near company had a lot of national pride and a lot of local enthusiasm was really positive, but unfortunately at scale, you know, uh, five, 10, 20 kids in my garage, you know, I could mentor when 130 kids in my garage and no other people with that kind of Silicon Valley experience and no long, no more senior management, and nobody with Silicon Valley credentials on the board because they can't fly to New Zealand for board meetings. And maybe the video conferencing didn't work as well as it does today. Um, so you get, you know, your board members are agritech founders, which, you know, maybe in New Zealand are very accomplished at that, but they're the wrong managers and the wrong board members for a tech company that's VC funded, that's trying to shoot the moon. How, how important is the is the board in, in these sorts of situations? What 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 are the key things? Well, in my experience, it was critical, right? Because the and again, you know, how do you phrase it? I'm a product of my environment, which was Western venture capital boards, um, and so in the U.S., the VCs are often uh, this is a broad statement, but often. They're the people who became billionaires founding companies themselves, and then they put their money into venture funds, and their expertise at understanding how to start companies attracts, we, we call it the dumb money, that is the people who don't know how it works, but they want to support, invest alongside that expertise. And so the classic American VC fund is, is, is run by founders who have done it. 
And so those people have a really intimate understanding when they sit on a board of what it is to be a CEO of a startup because they're very scary and they're dangerous and there's requirements on them that don't seem obvious. Uh, Rational people wouldn't say that seems to make sense. It's kind of crazy. One of the things you have to explain to people is that a VC funded tech company either needs to knock it out of the park, hit a home run, right? Or get killed by the ball. <laughs> there's no bunting. There's no first base. You, mm. you better swing for the fences or, you know, break your, break your neck trying. Um, and so a VC funded company has to really go for it or fail quickly because in some sense, the worst thing to end up is what you call a zombie company, which is quite common, which is it's, Got enough momentum to not die, but never enough momentum to turn into a unicorn and be successful. And so a VC startup, funded startup, has to have a certain momentum. And I was having a real hard time getting and maintaining what would be considered competitive momentum in New Zealand. And it was the inability to scale more with the experience and especially with the board governance. and so I, by surprise, because I was very hardcore in getting the product out and driving, I was surprised that by decisions the board thought it knew best how to make, um, that I that I was I knew from a lot of experience would cause the company to fail. And the problem is, uh, you know, I had I ran global developer relations for Microsoft, which were dealing with lots and lots of VC funded startups, and I saw lots of them fail. And there are a couple really common patterns in failure, which again, founder board members know, right? One is that when the founders, founding partners don't get along and fall apart or the founders are removed and the company isn't a real stable business, it hasn't hit its business pace, the company's almost always dead. Uh, That just kills it. Um, And it happens very quickly and it's very consistent and everybody knows that over there. Um, And so, you know... uh, when I got to the situation going, wow, we're really running badly. Don't have the right experience here. We need to, I hate to say it because I love it here and I love the people, but we got to get some people in the U S we got to be able to get US VC dollars to go any bigger. The economy is not big enough to support this thing. Storage, it takes a lot of capital, which is okay in the U S the funds go, yeah, I got a hundred million to do storage. Let's do that. But not in New Zealand. That's asking too much. Um, and so I, 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 there was a lot of pressure by the board to go, no, no, this is a national pride. We like sitting on the board of a Kiwi storage company that's going to starve to death for lack of, you know, experience management and cash. Um, and so I was surprised by the board and my founder by a change in direction that was, came unexpectedly. Um, and the problem is, and the other thing that happens that's very bad and that's common, and I, I may always made a promise when you raise money from people in the U S often they're nameless faces, faceless investors, but in New Zealand, it's, you know, farmers and people, you know, and their neighbors, it's their cash. It's hard earned. Um, even if I'm mad, even if I disagree, I'm not allowed to screw the company or try to harm it on purpose. Uh, and so the problem is you go, Hey, I'm the founder. I know that what's going on here is a disaster. But I can't go say, hey, everybody, your investment's lost. You're all screwed. Uh, ooh, uh, because that's harming the company and the, the risking their investment. And I hired the board and my partners. So uh, it's my fault, too. 
so uh, the problem was like, oh, I, I, what is a, a professional way to fire a flare and say, hey, look, there's a, a, what's going on here is real bad. Um, and so what I did is I sold all my shares very cheaply. And because of the way the papers for the company were drawn up, the board is forced to tell all the invest offer them to all the investors. So that forced the board to call every investor in Nereid and say, hey, the American founder here is leaving the company because they wanted to keep that a big secret. It was very important to, you know, uh, and, 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 and selling their shares cheap and you're entitled to buy them. So that was my way of, of saying, hey, I, I, even though, you know, of course I'd like to keep my shares and whatever in case I'm wrong, because heaven forbid that happens sometimes, very rarely, but sometimes. Um, I think the right thing to do by the investors is fire that flare uh, so that at least anybody comes along can ask a lot of questions and any subsequent investors can ask those questions and, and say, hey, wait a minute, what went on here? So that's what I did. And then I, I tried to leave as politely as I could. Um, and, and I think I'm very disappointed by that because I went, oh, okay, yeah, I should have moved it to the US earlier, got too big and out of control. Um, it really needed a Silicon Valley board sooner um and not necessarily because there was anything wrong with those board members for a new zealand company but definitely not qualified to make decisions for a for a vc funded startup um and so there was you know there's details and drama to that 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 you know i don't think i it's not necessary to out except to say my point of view was i grew too big too fast in new zealand and even though it would have been great to keep there it wasn't going to work and it was uh, poor judgment on my part not to get it shifted to the U.S. more aggressively when it started to succeed. Because um, the, the company, you know, in some sense, a lot of what happened there, if it had happened in Silicon Valley, the early phase would have looked great. You had the sudden growth and big partnerships and deals, exciting contracts, and lacking the management and scale to satisfy it all, you would have gone down to Andreessen Horowitz knocked on the door, raised $100 million, hired a bunch of people who make minimum $600,000 a year to come over from Google data storage or wherever to manage that division. And, and that's how you would have solved it. And that wasn't, definitely wasn't possible in New Zealand. I'm exaggerating, but that's kind of the, you know, the way Americans do this stuff with, yeah. with all the cash <laughs> and VCs. So, um, so for, when, when you look at New Zealand uh, startups, yeah, um, you know, there, there is a sort of variety of, of approaches and, you know, in terms of moving offshore or establishing a beachhead into a sort of particular, you know, market, yeah. uh, you know, of which, of course, the United States is, is you know, the, the most the most common. Um, you know, what, what are your sort of thoughts? Because that's obviously, get, there's going to be a difference between a, a New Zealander establishing something out of, out of New Zealand, which, which in a lot of cases will need to go to, uh, to the US because the, you know, the, the, the yeah. market, you know, usually for, for, for a startup that's going to scale is not, is not the New Zealand market. Um, you know, any, any thoughts on just from, you know, your, what you, you, you saw and learned while you yeah. were, while you were here and what you saw working well yeah, or, or uh, not Kiwis. working well. Yeah. So Kiwis, uh, again, please forgive me for saying this. I love New Zealand. 
And I'm saying it this way because I love New Zealand and I'm sorry I'm American, okay? Just, I apologize. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> um, I try to keep the American, you know, disease, uh, you know, as much as contained as possible from your fantastic culture. But I think that there are some, you know, if you said, hey, Alex, what would you recommend for New Zealand if we wanted to have more of a successful tech economy here, right? And the interesting thing is you have some incredible miraculous successes there in spite of all the obstacles that almost nobody knows about. And in some sense, it's those exceptions that convince me that I'm right about my analysis, right? You have a game company over there that is world-class, just amazing. And they raised a ton of money from Tencent. Uh, and they're kind of little known and nobody talks about them and they're run by just hardcore, real classic founders. Right. And it's a, and, and, and knowing what they did in New Zealand without the support of venture capital, so forth, incredible Testament. So I've seen them there. And when I chat with them, I go, and I, that's why I'm not going to name it here because they made lots of money and I wanted to keep that way. Right. When you talk to me, go, oh, what's the problem? They told me, they warned me when I, before I came to Zealand about all the problems I would encounter, and they were right, the serious ones. And I would try to characterize it this way, right? If New Zealand said our goal, we want to have a Microsoft happen here, right? And that's rule number one. That's the thing that the, the one thing about that company is they're made they're a world-class game company. Their MMO is played by everybody all over the world. And they're New Zealand based. That's what you want is you want all of the world's money flowing to New Zealand and staying there. And in order for it to stay there, the people who cause all the money to flow in to New Zealand by making world-class tech, they need to be allowed to get rich in New Zealand and stay that way. Right? Because if, if they're hated, if they're resented, if there's envy and contempt and, and well, we really got to punish them by taking that money away in some form. If that's the culture, well, they go somewhere else and it's easy for rich people to go somewhere else. And they do. Um, and so the observation one is there's a certain that Kiwi culture, which again is charming and enduring, that really seems to resent the idea that somebody in New Zealand got really unreasonably wealthy there, that that would be kind of a source of hatred. And yet it's what you need if you want to create thousands of jobs and have 90% margin money that doesn't cause any pollution in your waters and field and doesn't mow down any forest, just cash from the globe pouring into your cities and into your employees and your kids' pockets. You need Kiwis to get rich in New Zealand and stay there with that money. And so if I were making laws in New Zealand, I would pass tax and stock option laws that were ex insanely generous to people who found companies there and let them and the first employees keep, just keep all of it, whatever. Thank you for creating 10,000 jobs with, you know, payroll taxes for the next 30 years. Go ahead and become a billionaire in New Zealand and enjoy it. So there are a lot of things about New Zealand, tax laws, regulation, employment law, that I think is an obstacle to, makes it quite hard for, for, people to hit that entrepreneurial velocity because look at your reaction and bill rogers reaction when i go you you, you got to work really hard really crazy intense and and that natural which i get you go oh yes that's a terrible thing to do that's a mean thing to do to people and i go yeah but that's what makes a microsoft or a facebook and it's people who who do that the few who, who will do that that's what creates those and you want one to stay happen in new zealand and stay there 
that because the next generation, the thing that makes it Silicon Valley is those billionaires, they start VC funds and they attract other billions from around the world to support their good judgment and they fund other Kiwi startups. And you don't have a tech economy until you created native billionaires who stay and then they invest in local startups. And when they're doing that, now you've got a Silicon Valley dynamic. Um, so, you know, I would write a whole treatise on things I would suggest about the way you change labor laws and some of the tax laws for entrepreneurship to support. You want, again, the same thing is you want them to be a billionaire in New Zealand. You want that billionaire to be stuck with them there. You want to make a nice well where being, where getting rich in New Zealand is almost in, impossible to escape with the money once they've got it there. But boy, can they live great, <laughs> right? And you can say in some sense, whether it was accidental or not, that's really what happened in California with the Valley. Um, so I had a lot of kind of frustrating, I can give you, I don't know how much time you have, but I can give you kind of mundane, simple examples that kind of highlight, um, like, for example, um, like in Cambridge, you know, in America, everything's open 24 seven. You just used to, you can, I can get food at 3 AM. Right. Uh, and in Cambridge or New Zealand, you go to a restaurant and they'd be open for breakfast and for an hour at lunch and for an hour at dinner and just close the rest of the time. And you go, well, why are you closing? You go, well, we have this very high minimum wage. And so the restaurants can't afford to pay it when there's no customers there. So they just close. So you can't go buy food from them at that hour because, yeah. The minimum. And then nobody tips it. You t man, Americans are used to tipping. Oh, man, that I was upsetting so many Kiwis by trying to tip them. And it's really confusing to Americans because in our culture, you know, that's being a good person and a generous, you know, person is to tip them. And the Kiwis just act like, you know, why do you hate me? And, and don't you think I'm doing a good enough job? And, you know, I can't steal your money. It's just try So there was a real culture shock over tipping. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> mm -hmm. Confusing. Um, but the punchline is, and they have these contractor laws and so forth. So the punchline was that these laws are kind of meant to protect people doing physical menial labor jobs from being abused at, you know, apple picking and running machines or factory jobs. And when your labor laws are constructed for that, well, sitting at a keyboard, wiggling your fingers creatively for a lot of hours isn't the same kind of physical stress and a very different type of economy. And those labor laws really made it hard to structure a company in an environment in a way that could have the momentum it takes to compete. Um, and again, you may have all the people, oh, it's a sweatshop and it's horrible and we don't want those people and we hate rich bastards. And if, hey, it's your country, don't do it then. But if you did then don't pretend you might as just let me you need to let you let your kiwis get rich and make sure that they stay rich and nice and happy and a huge luxurious mansion in new zealand investing in other startups because that's how it works uh and that's how you get singapore where just you know tons of cash flowing in in this incredibly vibrant economy which they were very successful at deliberately engineering um not that you necessarily want to be exactly like Singapore, believe me, is there's yeah, and I, and I think that there's that aspect that that often comes up, and I, I remember an article I you know wrote that that the media, uh, an opinion piece that sort of picked up and and you know some of the main uh, media here during during sort of early COVID, and um, you know I it, what one of the media outlets put a title on it of you know that we need to make New Zealand Silicon Valley, which wasn't actually what I was saying. 
because there is a uniqueness to New Zealand yeah. and we, 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 we want to, you know, we want our own environment. We don't want to be Singapore. We don't want to be uh, Silicon Valley. We don't want to yeah. be, you know, Israel, but we want to, we want to be ourselves, but taking inspiration and, 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 you know, l- the learning the best from, from yeah. the most successful, um, yeah. you know, ar- around the world. Yeah. And, you know, I guess, and, and it doesn't happen, right? You don't ever end up with an exact replica of, of no, what of course happens not. in and Silicon Valley anywhere yeah. anywhere in the world because each environment yeah. is, has its own, you know, uniques from, yeah. you know, people, culture, and, and, and yeah. so many other aspects. And, and I've had a front row seat over decades working with studios and companies in a lot of emerging economies and countries. So I've had a front row seat to the Philippines and India and Ireland and uh, Ukraine, ironically, um, you know, I can, I, again, time not, but I can tell you some stories I think are fascinating about how they, and North Korea, South Korea, not North Korea, South Korea. <laughs> I, I remember the various government initiatives they had to try to form tech economies and how it happened. And yes, yeah, sure enough, they, uh, all of those had success. They all formed tech economies and they're all, none of them look anything exactly like Silicon Valley. So I agree with you entirely. And believe me, I love the Kiwi culture so much that I go, I'd love to find a recipe that worked. But the thing you can't ignore is that you cannot compete in tech if you institutionally can't hit competitive market velocity. That's a requirement. So the one thing you have to be able to do is get people working at the velocity and intensity of immersion to be competitive at a global competitive marketplace. You got to be able to support that in whatever your native form is there there's no path to a silicon valley for new zealand at island time um and and and, and i loved island time i just sorry you know so i go if you could i'll tell you one of the things the greatest frustrations i had as a manager there is i would tell the kiwis i go look you're on an island that is it's saturday here when it's friday in america in the eight thousand miles in the pacific ocean from anywhere and you're trying to build a global technology company. None of your customers are going to be on this island. They're going to be in England and Israel and America. They're going to be all over. And if you won't come in on a Saturday or be on phone call and customer service at 3 a.m., then I got to hire that in India. And I'd rather be hiring a Kiwi for it. Uh, and it was quite because of the labor laws and the culture. It was it was very hard to say I need people on the phone line for our customers in England when they're in England on our need people on call with our customers and doing meetings in Japan time with our customers in Japan. And that was quite hard to sell and quite hard to organize from, you know, a labor point of view in New Zealand. Um, and so, you know, and I, so I hated sitting there going, I'm going to have to, you know, dial 1-800-INDIA for my support staff or something because I can't get it here in New Zealand. Um, and one of the biggest, you know, the, the, the Waikato Day, Waikato Day was the bane of my existence. <laughs> because it was the one day of the year when everybody in America is open and is at work and wanting to have business meetings with Myriad. And the Kiwis are like, oh, we're barbecuing, mate. <laughs> Sorry, that was my fake Australian accent, my best attempt. <laughs> but they don't bugger off to barbecue no matter how much I plan, no matter how much I said we got meetings, we got calls with Dell in Austin, Texas on like Auto Day. Everybody's like, oh, Spike Auto Day, gone. <laughs> so that was very stressful and frustrating. And so I go, you know, I, I get it. I like Wakato Day. I, the whole thing understood, but it's so hard to build a global company in New Zealand with New Zealand employees. If they're, you know, you're not on 
those time zones where all your global customers are trying desperately to send their money to New Zealand if you'll just yeah. take their phone calls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, these and and I guess these are the things that 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 we don't you know necessarily realize um, you know a, as Kiwis uh, and you know it's uh, you know we we learn the things that we need to do when we're say launching into the U.S. market and yeah. you know you and I were talking about this but but before we started right and and how you know we're we're um, uh you know not very loud we're uh you know we're we're you know reasonably sort of shy and reserved when it yeah. you know comes to sort of talking about our, our startups and yeah. our companies and you know how, how good the kiwi things are whereas you know the bravado of how things operate in the u.s is sort of you know opposite end of the uh the, yeah. the spectrum on that right so we, yes. we we hear that a lot from founders that have you know, had success in the US and, 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 you know, we get nudged that way. Um, But it's actually really interesting to, uh, you know, get a, get, get a feel for, um, yeah, what, what it's like for people coming, coming the other way. Yeah. yeah. And the the things that you see that we might not see, right? Yeah. Well, I know. And the same here, right? Like I said, I had very strict, uh, you know, political convictions when I got to New Zealand and they got all messed up when I got over there. Um, so it definitely was worldview changing. Um, but, you know, one of the funny things I'll tell you is that Kiwi executives employees are very successful in the U.S. being the way they are, um, because the funny thing is the soft spokenness conveys as confidence. Um, and so the funny thing is, is that like there's the, the head. I don't know. At the time I was working over there, the CEO of Walmart was a Kiwi. You find Kiwis in very senior engineering roles and in very senior leadership roles all over the U.S. because that soft-spoken, patient, island time kind of thing manages hyper-intensifile Americans very well. Um, so I will say that at the same time that, that you know, I go, yeah, big talking in that American way is an expected part of how we sell. I have seen Kiwis be very successful in America being Kiwi-like, um, and so, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't discard that casually either. Um, but there are, you know, the funny thing is if we come to startups, right, you'd say startups where yeah, you really have to have a huge vision and you have to be shooting the moon. Maybe that requires more of that, uh, Western style exaggeration than say being CEO of Walmart, <laughs> which is a totally different thing. So I think that the Kiwi personality I see has been very successful over here. Um, and, and certainly the engineers that I've trained that have come to the U.S. and other countries are doing really well. I'm very proud of them. Um, so in some sense, you don't have to change a thing unless you want to raise money for startup companies, in which case there's some new tricks you should learn. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, I'm mindful I've taken up a lot of your time. Was there um, you know, anything else that, uh, that, that you think we should cover? Oh, boy. well, I will say uh, if this is going to, you know, go on the air, I want to, you know, promote it with all the links. So, you know, I lived in Hobbiton in New Zealand. So I lived in Narnia. Uh, it was uh, what was a uh, Xena filmed in wherever her world was and Middle Earth. And, and it is so beautiful there. And one of the things that was very confusing and that's why I go, oh, boy, maybe it's hopeless. Right. Is that, man, when you weren't in the basement grinding away life was 
so, you know, the hiking and the trails and the people, you know, and, and so you go, oh, it's much easier to be an intensifile engineer in America where we all kind of hate each other. <laughs> we don't make eye contact. We don't really like each other much. We like to have our tinted windows on our big SUVs. And, and, and so that, that, that culture in New Zealand, I, I, I got sucked into island time too. Uh, and so, you know, the, but from a living over there, could I live over there, you know, and, 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 uh, and I would love to be not be running a company in Seymour, New Zealand, because I just loved it. And again, I, you know, I'm a very confused American from living over there because I go, boy, I'm going to bring all my expertise and teach this poor primitive culture how to build a tech company and then get there and go, Ooh, hold up on that. <laughs> um, I don't really want to ruin this because these, this is a happier world than the one I'm from. Uh, and yet I want to try to add some value. So that's why I go caveat. If you seriously think you want a tech economy, sorry, you, you have to be able to hit a much higher velocity or you cannot compete. I'm sorry. That isn't necessary. How you fit that in with everything else that is fantastic is a puzzle for you to figure out. And I hope, I hope you do. And I think it's possible because I had a great experience there up until, you know, it, it, grew too much to be something that could be handled you know, managed that way. Um, and so I, I, my perception is that it absolutely can work. Uh, and there's just a little more technique to getting it right. And on the one hand, I'm proud to have, you know, tried to pioneer it. On the other hand, I'm sad that it wasn't totally successful. Uh, but my impression was, yeah, with a little bit of a twist and some refinement, uh, you could probably get it there. You could, you could definitely, get world-class tech companies there if you thought that was the thing you wanted <laughs> yep 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 oh that's uh that's that's really encouraging and um look we'll we'll include on the um on the web page some some videos and you know other bits and pieces that will fill out the picture um do you want to share anything about what you're up to now yeah, well, I sadly you know there's a lot of folks who used to work for me who uh need jobs I am hiring all my former Nereid colleagues who will need a job or happy to refer them on to the right folks. Uh, I raised uh, capital for Playcast.io here in the U.S., and it's a streaming media platform going back to the gaming roots. And Neridians who worked with me in the past, I've got a few job openings. Not all enough for all of you, but I've got a good network, and I'm very happy to help you make connections and references and get you all jobs. And I plan to have a, a Kiwi office. We have some Neridians working for Playcast now, and I'd love to hear from those of you who need jobs. Again, I don't have a bucket of them yet, but you know I will over time. Um, so I hope to, I'm looking forward to having an excuse. And my VCs, my investors at Playcast, uh, the lead investor in in my new company is Bing Gordon, one of the founders of Electronic Arts. Um, so all these guys like the idea of having a New Zealand uh, development office and having excuses to have board meetings and things over there. So. Um, I hope that uh, that Playcast hires a lot of great uh, Kiwi engineers, and uh, and I'm going to stay U.S. based this time, based on some previous experience. But I'd certainly love to be hiring Kiwis again, and hope to hear from some of you guys. We already have a few hired, and we got interviews for them all this week. So thank you, and I really appreciate you giving me a chance to plug the new company. We're launching Playcast um, this year, probably uh, next quarter, around the Game Developer Conference. And it's a streaming media platform that lets people stream games. So it's like streaming video from your home computer, except with gamepad, mouse, and input for sharing everything. Um, and it's very exciting tech. I spent COVID in the last two years 
in my basement with my other basement troll friends building it. And despite the fact that the market's very hard, uh, we got uh, raised some capital uh, very successfully recently and, and are ready to go. So love to uh, have some New Zealanders involved in that experience again. And happy to hire some of you guys if you need a good gig and happy to help you get find them. Thank you. Well, yeah, that's that's really uh, really interesting, and certainly, you know, wish you all the best with with Playcast, and uh, certainly, you know, look forward to to seeing you back down uh, down under uh, here in New Zealand again uh, at at some stage. When I, uh, I have two Kiwi children, I have to you know return to their homeland one day. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well, thanks so much, Chalix. Uh, it's been fantastic uh, having you on the New Zealand Tech Podcast today. And uh, look, I, you know, I'm sure that listeners are going to find a bunch of, of takeaways in there. As always, uh, you know, people will look in and and uh, take different uh, different lessons or agree or, or or disagree. But yeah, I appreciate you being um, a straight shooter on on your your thoughts and and opinions about uh, about our, our startup and and tech uh, scene here in yeah. New Zealand. It's uh, it, it's important that we get these outside uh, perspectives. I think someone that's that's been very much an insider and uh you know is now uh not here i th- i think you know you you have a, a viewpoint we probably don't don't often hear so uh oh. do appreciate you caring enough to uh, to take the time and uh, to share that today i appreciate having uh, yeah having me on paul and like i said i had a great experience over there and maybe one day if i sell a company for another few billion dollars i'll get to come back to new zealand and uh stay there with the money but I'd really love to see some other Kiwis who went abroad come back and start companies over there. I'd be very excited to see that. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thanks everyone for listening in to this episode of the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Uh, look, I'm sure uh, amongst our listeners will be, uh, you know, former team members of of Nuriad, uh, whether whether that is uh, employees, uh, directors, or shareholders. If you have uh, some commentary that you would like to include, then, you know, too, please get in touch um, via social media uh, or via our website. Um, we would, you know, love to, to hear from you. I think there, there are always things to be uh, learned when uh, things don't, you know, maybe pan out as expected. So, you know, of course, sometimes we look to our biggest uh, tech success stories, you know, the, the, the likes of uh, Xero and, and, and Pushpay, uh, for learnings, but look, there are learnings to be had in every single startup, uh, whether they ended up becoming the next big thing or not. Uh, so, you know, really insightful what we've, uh, you know, heard today. Um, but do feel free to get in touch if you've got something you'd like to add to that discussion. Uh, we would we would certainly welcome that. Uh, and of course, I'd like to say a big thank you to our show partners uh, for making the New Zealand Tech Podcast possible. So, thank you to Gorilla Technology. HP, Spark, Two Degrees, and One NZ. All right, well, we'll catch you on the next show, and uh, do make sure if you've been listening to uh, to this audio that you're also subscribed to our video channels, uh, so you get access to uh, our live content, and you can find uh, NZ Tech Podcast not only through those audio channels of Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and so on, uh, but across YouTube, uh, LinkedIn, X, and Facebook. All right, catch you next week. See ya. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.